an animated movie based on a TV series, rushed to theaters for Christmas, then reanimated to fit the big screen, but bombed at the box office. However, now it's considered one of the greatest comic book movies of all time. On this episode of Moving Panels, we discuss Mask of the Phantasm. Welcome to Moving Panels, the podcast where we discuss movies and TV shows based on, inspired by, and adapted from the world of comic books. I'm your host, Laramie Wells, and joining me today is Bat fan, Mr. Blake Fowler. As it was written in the prophecy, I have returned, Laramie, and I'm excited to talk about my favorite and possibly the greatest animated movie of all time. We we shall see. That is definitely what we're here to discuss, uh, but but we are not going to begin this show talking about a prophecy, because that's always, oh, just, that's always bad I'm, news I'm for a movie. Uh, my bad. I'm sorry. My fault. <laughs> Yeah, you don't know. You watch any movie, and it starts. It starts off, you know, pro- prophecy. prophecy foretells. You already know, crap. This is going to be a bad movie. All right, but let's let's go ahead and jump in. We're today. We are talking about Batman colon Mask of the Phantasm. I just call it Mask of the Phantasm. Although the colon is one of the more important parts. The body not essential here to the title of the film. Sure, <laughs> whatever. So Mask of the Phantasm, uh, I'll go ahead and put out spoiler warning here because there is a big reveal. Well, there is a reveal. I'm not even going to call it a big reveal, but I'll talk about that later. We talk about spoilers here? We we do spoilers on this show? Oh, okay. And of of course, as you know from listening to any other previous episode, we're going to talk about the entire movie. So we will be giving away anything and everything that happens. Mm -hmm. So I would recommend that if you've never seen Mask of the Phantasm, you probably want to watch it before. You listen to this. Episode. Sounds like solid advice. All right. But this was the first animated movie from not only DC, but it was also the first animated movie from Warner Brothers Animation, beating out Space Jam by three years. Uh, if you want to call Space Jam an animated movie. Partially, I guess. Uh, but thank goodness, because yeah. they were both great in their time. Mask of the Phantasm still holds up, though. Yeah. No, I, I won't won't deny that. Uh, and. Part of the the love for this is because it is a theatrical version of the beloved Batman the Animated Series that pretty much started everything that is great about DC Animation Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the DC Animated Universe. Yeah, I I think growing up, dude, I did not miss an episode. Saturday mornings, there I was, front and center television, animated series, uh, every single time it was on. Such a big part of my childhood. No, I mean, yeah, I was probably preteen age during that run because you're talking what 90, 92, uh, through 90, 94, I think was when the last episodes aired. So, yeah, I was right at the 10 to 13 uh, age for this. And this movie was supposed to be part of the Batman animated series storyline mm-hmm. so it was the same team same people behind it. it is directed by the great and wonderful bruce tim who was behind all of those wonderful things that we had in the 90s and early 2000s with dc animation the man himself yeah it co-directed by eric radomsky who also it was involved with the animated series and written by alan burnett also with the animated series your names he even got help from some of the great writers michael reeves Martin Pascoe and the amazing Paul Denny. Um, so yeah, Paul Denny, dude, is one of, if not the most influential person in Batman the Animated Series lore, history, whatever you want to call it. Other than Bruce Tim, give Bruce Tim all his credit. Paul Denny's writing is what really brings, I think, a well-roundedness to the the character of Batman. 
And a lot of it stems from Paul Denny's own personal experiences, which we'll, we'll get to in a little bit. But for my money's worth, anything by Paul Denny, I'm going to put my hands on and soak up as much of it as I can. And of course, Paul Denny, you know, gave us Harley mm-hmm. Quinn. He created the character who is now right up there with all the other characters that have been around since the 40s. She, she certainly, thanks to him. And, and again, his writing creation has put her in the upper echelon of, of Batman characters. So we've got ourselves a Batman, the animated series movie going to have a theatrical release. And you're thinking, Ooh, you know, movie to take your kid to in the summer. Absolutely. Nice springtime movie. Love it. Uh, Should be great. Nope. They released this movie on Christmas day, 1993. Uh, Oh oh, no. When I think Batman, (laughs) I think Christmas. Uh, And again, masked murderers also is very family oriented Christmas time. Yeah. This movie falls in a weird genre where it's it's animated, it's fat, it's from a Saturday morning cartoon, mm-hmm. so it's clearly aimed to mm-hmm. kids. But then when you're watching it, there's a lot. I mean, I know a lot of kid movies have adult stuff, but this one really pushes well, me, that. Uh, it did get a PG rating. It's so. a straight up kids movie for adults, is what it is, bar none. Uh, the only the only reason I think this gets marketed to kids is because of the sales of toys. Which at the time, I'm I'm young. That's one thing I wanted. You know, you go in the store and you see the toys there, and you're begging your parents. But I don't know if there was quite the market of adult toy collectors that there is right now. I know that's like a huge market. Yeah. But back then, I don't know if that was necessarily the case because I wasn't an adult, barely one now in my own mind. But yeah, I, I think it gets marketed because the toys. But it's definitely an adult geared towards adult as far as the the basis of the film. Yeah, so we're going to talk about the toys in just okay, a minute. Toys, but let's talk about let's talk about that production. So they did not intend this to be a theatrical release. The idea was for it to be just tied into the animated series and be a direct to video movie, which was what a lot of things were back in the nineties. There were all these, you know, I mean, VHSs mm-hmm. were sold like hotcakes, mm-hmm. and it was an executive or somebody from Warner brothers who saw the opening credit scene with the CGI Gotham city and the camera flying through and panning around the CGI Gotham city. And they went, we should make this a feature. Okay. So are we going to change the, the release, the production there? Like, nope. Nope. We're keeping the same thing. And they're like, okay. Because you understand we've got to redraw some stuff. Uh, well, it puts a little bit of a time crunch on those guys then to uh, go ahead and make a change like that because you're talking about a change in aspect ratio as well, correct? Because you're going from the TV screen that is four by three to now the big rectangular big screen of the movie theater. So that's going to put a bit of a time crunch on those animators then having to change the whole ratio of the film. And Watching it like that, dude, you've got to think about the lack of promotion that went on with this as well. Well, before we get into the promotion, talking about the rush to that caused actually, there's some issues with the animation. There's parts yeah. where it okay. it kind of gets shaky or jumpy. Yeah, some some glitching goes on, and there's a couple of times where some of the characters might look a little stretched. Yeah, uh, just because maybe they're they're using panels they didn't quite convert to that. That theater ratio. Like a a color changes, because I think there's one point where Batman picks up something barehanded, but then all of a sudden he's got his glove on. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I I saw that, and I was like, I I don't remember that happening. But, uh, yeah, sure enough, he picks it up barehanded, and the next scene he's got gloves on. So some issues that if you're one of those people who's watching the movie for the first time, 
and you're trying to see those things, you're going to see them. But on a second viewing, doesn't really bother you. Or for me, like an eighth or ninth viewing, doesn't really bother you. No, unless you're watching it to, you know, critique it like we are doing, you still mm-hmm. you're still going to enjoy it. It's not going to bother you all that much. But yeah, let's get into that promotion. So this movie did not get a lot of promotion. I I don't remember. And again, I was twelve when this came out, so I would probably remember things pretty well around that time. Right. And I don't remember seeing all these TV spots for it, even though I did watch the series. I honestly, and I'm sure they aired them during, especially during the show, but I don't remember them. I don't remember any like McDonald's tie in or Burger King tie in Uh, come in and get the happy meal with toys from Batman mask of the phantasm. I don't remember any of that. I know that was a toy line. We'll get to that in a moment that they did release, but I don't remember those either. So yeah, very little minimal promotion here. Hey, that is a wonderful McDonald's narrator voice that you just did there. Let me go ahead and say that, put that out there. B, I, I remember I was six going on seven, uh, I guess. And I, I can vaguely, very faintly remember uh, one ad for the film Mask of the Phantasm during the animated series TV show, because that's why I went to my parents and I was like, look, we need to go see this. I bother them all the time. Let's go see this. I want to see this movie. But yeah, no McDonald's toys. And even the toys that were in stores were kind of sparse. I remember going to several different Walmarts trying to find all these toys with my parents. Like we went around, uh, if you remember KB toys, like we were in every KB toys we could find trying to get to these these figures so that yeah not a whole lot of promotion went on for it well and not just that the toys so kenner had the toy line and mm-hmm. all they did was they just repackaged the toys they already had for the animated series so they just changed the packaging so it was the mask of the phantasm but it was the same batman like it, once you took them out of the package you probably wouldn't have been able to tell this batman from the batman from the animated series or the joker probably not or any of the other characters they recycled but let's talk about the infamous toy. So uh, apparently nobody at Warner Brothers was in communication with Kenner to say, hey, when you create this new villain, and let's go ahead and make it clear, we're, we're spoiling. There's spoilers everywhere. We're spoiling this just like, major just spoiler like this here. toy did. <laughs> they No one said, hey, the phantasm of this movie, it's a big reveal who it's supposed to. Well, it's a reveal. Who it's supposed to be it's somewhat. Yeah. Uh, no one told the people at Kenner. So Kenner releases the phantasm toy where the hood of the phantasm is not attached to the body because we see Andrea Beaumont, all her redheaded yeah. glory. The, the first thing I want to tell the listeners is communication is the most important part of any relationship. So yeah, uh, Warner brothers, DC should have been in communication with Kenner and that would have solved the problem. I remember seeing the toy and getting the toy in stores, and it's this red-haired lady. Now, I, fortunately for me, I'm young enough. I didn't make the connection while watching the movie that Andrea Beaumont was yeah, the Yeah, you had no idea who she but, is unless you've seen the movie. Yeah, no, no clue, yeah. Um, but if you if you were an adult watching it, along with there being pretty not-so-subtle clues that she is the phantasm in the movie, that was the biggest clue of all if you see the toy. Yeah. But again, I don't remember that. I don't remember the toy. You know, this stuff I did not know. Uh, and, uh, you know, whether or not the bad promotion or lack of promotion, I guess I should say, 
well, and that's the other thing. So it's non-existent. If you do watch some of the trailers, the trailers don't really tell you anything. It just makes it look like, hey, you're going to see Batman hit some people and kick some stuff. And yeah, the, the trailer is not even that good. So yeah. could it be that all of that led to why it failed at the box office? Very much possibly so. Uh, I would say definitely so. Yeah, the fact that it's coming out in theaters uh, Christmas of 93, which means it's getting put up against movies like Philadelphia and Schindler's List, um, among uh, Wayne's World 2, uh, among others. Yeah. I mean, the, classics. Yeah. Because yeah. uh, <laughs> there's even a story Mark Hamill, who, if you're not aware, is the voice of the Joker. Mark Hamill was living in New York at the time. And when the movie came out, he and his family said, hey, let's go see it. So they go to a local theater, walks into the theater, and he notices there's like 12 people here. And he does say they all recognized him. I mean, he's Luke Skywalker. Uh, they all recognize him, but they were very respectful. He takes his seat, and just right before the movie starts, he's just looking around, and uh, he, he says, hey, y'all all just want to sit together? <laughs> so... Watching Batman with Luke Skywalker. That's pretty cool. That would cool, be though. pretty cool. I ain't going to lie. That would be pretty cool. And Paul Denny yeah. even has a story where when he and his group went to see the movie, they were the only people in the theater. So it was like he got his own private uh, screening without actually having to ask for it. Some people, yours truly included, would enjoy that. But yeah, 12 people in a movie theater is only good if the seating is like 15 or less. So you never you never want just 12 people in a movie theater. It's, it's tough because now, I don't know that, Cult classic is the right word. It's not quite mainstream, the the Mask of the Phantasm. Yeah, that is. But it's certainly, again, regarded as one of, if not the best animated comic book movies, and in some regards, the best Batman movie. Yeah. So uh, I don't think we talked about this. Let's talk about uh, where it falls in the Batman movies. So we had already gotten Burton's Batman. Of course, the first eighty nine Batman is what inspired the animated series and its style. We had already gotten Batman Returns at this point. Then we get this movie. So this movie actually comes after the Tim Burton movies, but before the Joel Schumacher movies, because Batman Forever would be another year or two. So this falls right there, if you're following the timeline of Batman movies, right in between the change in thematic nature of Batman. That's a very nice way to put it. So we're in this transition of Batman in terms of the live action. But this again, this is the animated series, which this only came after season one. And so we would still get a a few seasons after this. And throughout all of that, Blake and I have talked about this person before. Throughout all of that, we have the genius, wonderful Andrea Romano. Best uh, again, just uh, all these, but Bruce Tim, Paul Denny, Andrew Romano, all the great. best of the best working on this. Yeah, it's it's amazing how the universe, if you want to say, brought these people together to create this animated um, universe, uh, for lack of a better term. But I do want to highlight Andrea Romano because she is the well. First off, if you think about the list that Blake just rattled off, she's the only woman in the mm-hmm. group, and she was treated dirty. And let's talk about that. She is the casting and vocal director for Batman the Animated Series, later Superman the Animated Series, Justice League, Justice League Unlimited, when the DC animated movies started coming out uh, on DVD and Blu-ray and all that. She was still behind a lot of those. 
She's the one that finds these people. She's the one that gets them to be these great iconic voices. And if you haven't, go back to listen to a one-shot that Blake and I did about the amazing voice actors of DC. Andrea Romano is the one to give credit to. Finish this episode, then go listen to that one. Yes. (laughs) And she had always been credited as director, voice director, which is what she is. She's the one that when they are in the booth, she's giving them their notes of how to do inflection, how to do this, how she, you know, she's prepping so that we get these wonderful voices that we connect with these series. The problem was, was that as soon as they decided to make this a featured film, there was a rule. She could not be referred to as a director, even a voice director, because the, she was not a member of the Directors Guild of America. You guys would say that's very suspect. Yeah, and very, it very just suspect. wasn't right. Uh, she was not happy about it. She did decide to take on the name Supervisor. So when you see her in the credits, it says Casting and Voice Supervisor, Andrea Romano. But she is a director. She is very as vital as Bruce Tim and Alan Burnett and Paul Denny are to the success of these animated uh, this animated movie, but the animated series as a whole. And she should get that credit. And thankfully, Paul Denny at least named the brand new character Andrea Beaumont after her, which I will get into that story when we're talking about the character. Good on Paul. And to kind of put a maybe put a pin or a cherry. On top of this uh, Andrew Romano conversation, you've got Bruce Tim, fantastic director. Paul Denny, amazing writer. Are any of these series or movies as good if Romano doesn't find the right voice talent? Yeah, that's, that's, there's definitely, I, when the animated movies became a thing, I got excited if I saw her name pop up for casting. Yeah, 100%. If it said this movie was casted by Andrew Romano, I got excited. Uh, I do want to point out, though, you keep you and no, no insult or anything to Paul Denny. No, no, not diminishing him. He wasn't the main writer. The main writer was Alan. Right. Paul Denny wrote scenes, mainly the Joker scenes. Um, But he wrote scenes. Michael Reeves wrote scenes. Martin Pascoe wrote scenes. But the actual concept and the actual movie was written by Alan Burnett. So I don't want to diminish his his credit for this. Fair point. Thank you for bringing it up. Not a problem. That's what I'm here for. So let's start getting into the characters. And of course, it's a Batman movie. So we're going to start off talking about Batman. We've talked about him in several previous episodes. so We won't get into his comic background, but we'll just go ahead and mention, of course, he is voiced by the Batman. He's voiced by Batman. He's voiced by Kevin Conroy. He's voiced by Batman. He is a living Batman. The great Kevin Conroy, the voice you hear whenever you see a picture of Batman. Mm-hmm. Again, go back and listen to that episode that Tim and I did, the one shot on DC voice actors. We based on facts. We gravel at the feet that is uh, I said gravel. We grovel at the feet that is Kevin Conroy. If I have to grovel on gravel, I will. There you That's go. fine. There you go. Tie it all in together. So let's talk about how Batman is portrayed. So my favorite part about this is that we get to see an origin of Batman without having to kill the Waynes. Absolutely. You don't have to see the murder. Just for everyone out there who's thinking about doing a Batman story with an origin, you don't have to show the Wayne's murder to have a great origin story 
for Bruce Wayne that, keep coming back. Yeah, that is and a, this is the prime example. That's a big thing for me. I've said it in several previous episodes. I'm just like, why does every Batman movie have to show us the death of the Waynes? Like, even when he's well-established, even if we had already seen it, there's sequels to Batman movies that just go back and show us the death of the Waynes. We saw the death, even if it's not a Batman movie, they killed the Waynes in the Joker. Like, Ugh. it's like, Ugh. if it's yeah, if a... it's a movie connected to Batman, we must kill the Waynes. Yeah, that's uh, throwing an, a depressing plot point in an already depressing film, The Joker, but I know you and Chad covered that one already, so we won't get into that one too much. But again, great job of giving Bruce Wayne, establishing him as Batman, and, and having some callbacks to some comics that we'll look at in a minute to, to show him becoming Batman. And, dude, one of the coolest moments, I think you'll probably agree with me here, is the reveal of Batman. in the Greatest Batman. scene in the entire movie. The whole thing. Agree. A hundred percent, dude. Him silhouetted in the Batcave. He's just, he's just, it's just a, there's no definition. It's just a black figure. It's Bruce. He's putting the, the suit on. We see him put the gloves on. We see him put the cape on. Then Alfred hands him the cowl and, oh, he puts the mask on. We don't even see him. We don't see him. Mm-mm. He turns Nothing. around. Nothing. Alfred just aghast just shocked at what he is seeing, which spoke volumes about Batman. Yeah, the uh, the reaction verbally, and then also on the, the animated face of Alfred, I think when you look at it through the lens of being an adult, Alfred is not gasping at Batman, because odds are Alfred had a hand in making that costume. Yeah, he knew what the costume those looked pieces like. Together. Yeah. He knew what it was going to look like. He's gasping at because he Bruce God, disappears. This this child, yeah. yeah, this child I've raised is gone now. He sees a complete change in personality of yeah. Of Bruce oh Wayne. man, it was it's I got chills right now thinking about that particular scene. Such a great reveal for Batman. Yeah, a, a tremendous scene. Honestly, the best scene in the movie, in my opinion. It's, yeah, that's the best part. And and that's part of what I do like. As much as I have talked about in the past how I like to see my superheroes, I like that this movie shows us a little bit more Bruce Wayne than it does Batman. That we get to see Bruce uh, struggling, the turmoil that he faces because he is Batman. I absolutely love that this movie delves deep, and I'm pretty sure it's the only one. You can correct me if I'm wrong because you're a bigger Batman fan. It's really the only movie that I know of that instead of him just being, my parents died, now I am vengeance. It shows, no, he made a vow to his parents. It was a a vow that I am going to make this right and I will never allow this to happen to anyone else. Some of the other movies, the live action films, kind of touch on it a little bit. This one certainly delves a lot deeper into that and leans a lot harder into the vow. And you talk about the reveal of Batman being the best scene of the movie. I'll agree with you that as far as, I don't know, shock factor is the right word, but just visceral effect that is. But the best emotional scene is him at his parents' grave in the flashback, begging them, just, can I just be happy? Let me be happy. And we're seeing that side of Bruce Wayne that you don't always get to see. Uh, for the most part, Bruce Wayne is Batman. There's no delineation. They're, they're essentially the same person. But here you see those alter egos uh, you know, battle each other 
for the right to live their life. And it's it's so well done that we see so much of Bruce Wayne in this. Not just being Batman. Even when he's Batman, there's still pieces of Bruce Wayne coming through. Yeah, the the whole battle of whether or not he can be happy, which also, and again, we'll get into the moving panels and the connection comics. That's from this, the the story that they take is can Bruce be happy and still be Batman? And it's, it's such a pivotal part and it's told. And which is why I wanted to give Alan Burnett his credit. It is told so well in this movie. All right. You can't have a Batman movie without the Joker. And even though he is not the main villain and doesn't even show up until like 40 minutes into the movie, uh, we do have the Joker voiced again by wonderful Mark Hamill. Uh, and we even get kind of an origin of the Joker in this. We get to see yeah, get a little bit of one in terms of the, the mythos of the Batman animated series. We get to see who the Joker was before he became the Joker. It's a pretty neat little uh, throw in aside there to have the Joker have his own little origin. Uh, and not be, again, delving into, you talk about the Waynes having to be murdered. Anytime you see a Joker movie, at least animated, it's the vat of acid. And you felt like, we get it. We know. If we're watching this, we're well-versed in the history of these characters. So I like the fact they didn't go to that and, and have all that go on. Well, and you talked about uh, how dark some of this movie goes, too. The fact that they don't set him up as a sympathetic a villain that no, something tragic all. happened to him, which caused him to be because that was uh, left for the phantasm for mm-hmm. the Joker. He was a terrible human being to begin with. He was sadistic. He was womanizing his cat calling Andrea on her way in yeah. to the house. You know, he's not a good guy. He you know murders her father and then just walks by her without a care in the world and eats an apple. Yeah. I, I do like it truly shows that the Joker should not have any sympathy. There should not be a single redeemable aspect of the Joker. And that, to me, that's that's, that's how I like my Joker. And this Joker is absolutely terrifying. Hamill's laugh is one that just, you know, sends chills up your spine. You wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat because you dreamt about it. Yeah. But this one, and you're talking, this is years before Heath Ledger would give us his iconic performance as the Joker. This Joker, just like Heath Ledger's does later in Dark Knight, they establish how the mob, the mob bosses, all of they're afraid of him. Terrified. They don't want him to be involved with anything, any criminal activity in Gotham. Yeah, Sal Valestra goes to him kind of you know, there part ways toward the end of the movie and is even like, look, I didn't, I don't want to do this. Why do I have to do this? Because the Joker in this movie is this looming, imposing villain over Gotham because of how sadistic and psychotic he is in this iteration. Yeah. And ooh, uh, I'm sure this was Paul Denny. Paul Denny wrote some, some funny, but really morbid lines for the Joker. Yeah. Uh, I actually wrote down one of, one of my favorites is he says, looks like there's a new face in Gotham talking about the phantasm. He goes, looks like there's a new face in Gotham and soon his name will be all over the town to say nothing of his legs and feet and spleen and head. Just going all in yeah. on it right there. And 
it's it's so cool to see again as an adult rewatching it and seeing those things. It's like, man, this is a, this is a little darker than PG in some parts. And going into back to Hamill's performance, just his ability to switch between the the silly and goofy, but yet absolutely terrifying, and he does it in like the same sentence. Yeah, it just blends it all together yeah. in, in one solid run. It's just amazing. Like, I, you know, I know we've never we've never done a best Joker, but if if we are going to count voice. Who, as playing the Joker and not physical embodiment, then Mark Hamill's up there. He's he's number one. Well, my my question would be: I know everybody sees him as Luke Skywalker. He's a live action movie star, but is he a better voice actor just based on the Joker alone than he is a live action actor? Uh, yes, yes. The work he does with Joker, I, I don't want to get romantic about it, transports me to yes. that film. Like watching it's. Yeah. The same with Conroy. No, he I mean he's Luke Skywalker. He'll always be Luke Skywalker. Sure. He, he he fit that role perfectly. But no, his voice work, and of course we we're not gonna get into all, but he's done obviously way more than just uh-huh. the Joker. But his voice work, I think, is really where Hamill uh will be remembered as terms of his overall career. You know, yes, Agreed. he is Luke Skywalker, but he really shines in voice work, and that's just my opinion. Uh, next is our uh, brand new character, Andrea Beaumont. So no connection to the comics there, made up just for this movie. Voiced by Dana Delaney, who Andrea uh, Romano thought was so great that this is how Dana Delaney then became Lois Lane for Superman the Animated Series. Oh, very cool little tidbit there, Laramie. Yeah. So she got Lois because of this movie. She does a fantastic job, just like everybody that Beaumont, or I'm sorry, Romano hires. Yeah. Well, my Andrea's mixed well, up. Well, and there's rightfully so. As I alluded to earlier, Paul Denny did remember uh, or think of Andrea Romano while he was trying to come up with a first name for this character. They already had the name Beaumont because there was the tie in with another character, and they had that name. So they had Beaumont. They just needed to find a first name. And the story goes, when Kevin Conroy was testing his levels on the microphone, Andrea loved his voice so much, one of the things she always wanted him to do during a mic check was to say her name very softly into the microphone. <laughs> so you just got Kevin... Who doesn't want yeah. that, though? Even me, yeah. yeah. So you just got Kevin Conroy, and it was just something he just would then do from then on. When he was checking his levels, he would just say, Andrea. And Paul Denny remembered that. And so that is why this brand new character is named Andrea Beaumont. So Kevin Conroy is just saying Andrea throughout the whole movie because of a, a gag. Essentially. That's, pretty, that's yeah. pretty good. That's cool. I thought it was cool. I do like this character as a villain for, mm-hmm. and again, spoiler, uh, for Bruce. Bruce slash Batman because she's really this, the mirror image. I don't know if I'd say mirror image, but she's, she shows Bruce the path he could have gone down. She's what Bruce becomes. If Bruce just lets go, I think Alfred makes yeah, Alfred does later on in the yeah. movie. Um, but yeah, it's, it's certainly the, the one eighty of what Batman is, is the phantasm. You know, he, 
the Phantasm He. I say He because Phantasm was packaged as a He going out of those toys. Everything marketing was He, He, He. But the Phantasm is the antithesis of Batman. has no regard for killing people. Is out to seek bloody vengeance, not justice, but straight up vengeance. Um, and shows Bruce, hey, this is what could have happened. Yeah. Uh, I, and talking about Phantasm being marketed as a he, I mean, that was obviously meant to happen because the it was all a mystery about who the phantasm was they even the phantasm is voiced by stacy keach who mm-hmm. also voiced andrea beaumont's father carl beaumont right. so they and we'll get into the moving panels and how this is actually connected to the comics um so they had the same person who was voicing carl beaumont voice the phantasm to kind of help with that misdirect that oh wait that's this you know you recognize that's the same voice oh it's her dad that's mm-hmm. the phantasm and then of course the big reveal again the reveal that Andrea is in fact the phantasm so uh, we're, we'll get into that uh, last character I want to talk about is Arthur Reeves so Arthur Reeves is a councilman in Gotham City who is in the movie who you end up finding out is dirty. He's working with the mob and he's trying to put a stop to Batman and get Batman arrested and, and all that. He's voiced by Hart uh, Bachner. And as soon as I found out he was voiced by Hart Bachner, I was like, oh, this is great. I've got to talk about that. So for those of you who don't know who Hart Bachner is, Hart Bachner is Ellis from Die Hard. He's the sleazy guy who tries to work with the terrorists, tries to work with Hans Gruber. You know, who's got you, Bubby? You know, that who then, of course, just gets, you know, shot and killed. Uh, So he is he is Ellis from Die Hard. So this these characters match perfectly. Uh, Not his first foray in DC uh, comic movies as well. Because he is also Ethan, the love interest from the Supergirl movie. I was just picking up all the major roles here. Oh, yeah, because everybody loves the Supergirl movie. Uh, Who doesn't? Yeah. Uh, and But he also already had a connection to the animated series. His father, Lloyd Buckner, was the voice of the mayor, Mayor Hill, on the Batman animated series. Knowledge dropping right here, Larry Wells. Okay, I did not know yeah, that. So nice look. Now, we're not going to get into this, but I, I did discover that he and his father had an estranged relationship and actually never really spoke. But Family drama. But they are connected through the world of Batman the animated series. Gotta love a good family connection, even when they're estranged from another. We'll have to pick that up on another episode of Family Ties. Oh, sorry, that's already different. Not bad. No copyright infringement, please. Go ahead, Larry. Back to you. (laughs) Now, Arthur Reeves is actually from the comics. Uh, He pops up back in May of 1970 in Detective Comics 399, and it's this very similar comic, or very similar character. He he doesn't like Batman. He doesn't understand why Batman's hiding behind a mask and doesn't understand why the police are working with Batman. So it's they use that character. He looks different. And uh, I, I don't know I don't know the character that well in the comics to know if he ever was actually dirty and working with uh, the criminals or anything, but he is from the comics. We did have an Ar- an Arthur Reeves uh, in the the comics. 
Well, and again, that's I guess it's kind of cool that they they brought that back from so long. I think it was what the seventies, nineteen seventy, uh, that was published and written in. So yeah, to, to bring that for for maybe people who had been lifelong Batman fans, previous era of Batman, to have that callback to a character, pretty cool little thing for them to do. Hello, movie viewers and fellow movie lovers. My name is Tim Williams, and I'm the creator and host of Movie Views Presents, the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. See, I love the 80s, and I have a great appreciation and nostalgic passion for the classic 80s flicks that birthed my love for movies and ultimately helped shape my childhood. On each episode, I'll discuss, with a special guest co-host, of course, a different film from the 1980s. We'll share memories, favorite characters, iconic scenes, and even share some behind-the-scenes stories along the way. We'll discuss famous blockbusters like Raiders of the Lost Ark, Coming to America, Ghostbusters, Dirty Dancing, Top Gun, Die Hard, and many, many more. As well as some other cult classics and even lesser-known flicks we discovered on cable TV or the now-defunct video rental stores. Remember those? No matter what 80s flick we choose to talk about, we'll always have a good time, so come and check us out. You can find the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast on major podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, and more. Be sure to subscribe or follow so you don't miss a single episode. Once again, I'm Tim Williams, and I hope you'll join me for the next 80s Flick Flashback. Let's get into the moving panels. Uh, this is really an inspired by connection. It is not based on a storyline. Uh, they didn't adapt a storyline. They, they were inspired by a storyline, and it's a famous one. Uh, Batman Year Two, which is from det- its four issues, Detective Comics five seventy five through five seventy eight from nineteen eighty seven. And if you look at that, you can definitely see the inspiration because the villain in that is a guy named the Reaper. He's got a skull face. He's got the cloak, you know, hood and, and he's got hooks or whatever you want to call those sickles, sights, whatever for hands. Now uh, it's both of his hands, which just makes me wonder how does he get around with them on both hands? But he does have them on both hands. His costume has a little bit more red in it. It's not just the dark, gray and black he has some red in it is clearly though the inspiration for the phantasm they do they do uh say in the comics though he has existed long before batman that he was actually gotham's first vigilante Mm -hmm. Uh, but of course he did it the wrong way uh he killed which batman does not do he also uses uses a gun which is kind of hidden inside of his hook hands. little yeah his little hook hands and in this there is a connection here in the comics the reaper does discover batman's identity just like the phantasm discovers batman's identity but for completely different reasons and of course kind of helping with that twist the reaper actually is the father of bruce's love interest in the comic of course, it ends up being the love interest in the movie, but that's definitely the connection. Another interesting thing 
is Joker is not in the storyline. But Batman makes a very interesting alliance with none other than Joe Chill. Very interesting. Didn't see that coming when I was reading it. I honestly didn't either. I really didn't. For those unfamiliar with Joe Chill, Joe Chill is the man who killed the Waynes. He's the, the robber who shot Thomas and Martha Wayne. So they have to work together. Joe Chill is this you know assassin for hire. Uh, Batman actually teams up with the mobsters in the movie and says, I am going to stop the Reaper at any means necessary. And that does include having to shoot him. And so they even have this moment where Batman gets the gun that Joe used to kill his parents and carries it around. And I love the artwork. Todd McFarlane was one of the artists for this story. And you can definitely see Todd McFarlane in this. All over it. Yeah, the giant cape. Like yeah. He's standing there, but the cape's taking up oh. three times the amount of space that it should. But even in like silhouette, when Batman's kind of in shadow, they make sure that you can see the gun holster going yeah. across his chest. And that he's holding he's holding a gun. Because as we know, that yeah. is just not Batman. A pretty wild thing to see Batman carrying around a gun. And now I know back when uh, Batman first came to be, there was a lot of death that yeah. Batman was involved in. But in modern times, he doesn't kill. He doesn't carry a gun. He doesn't need it. But here in this particular comic, you're seeing, A, a lot of strange team-ups that are out of necessity. But then a lot of planned double crosses too in the comic where this person's supposed to take out this person. I'm going to yeah. take out them, but they don't know it. Yeah, because the mobsters do tell Joe, hey, when y'all are done with the Reaper, Batman will be right there. Go ahead and take out Batman. Where at the same time, Batman has vowed to Alfred and even Commissioner Gordon. He tells Commissioner Gordon, hey, look, we ain't working together on this because I'm going to kill Joe Chill when this is all said and done. I'm going to get my strained relationship, strained relationship with him and Gordon throughout this whole run, which was an interesting dynamic to see. Yeah, them. which I I do wish we had seen a little bit more of them because Gordon disappears like yeah. very early. In this Not movie. even halfway through the movie. It's the last yeah. time we see him, I think. And then Arthur Reeve kind of takes over uh, as being in charge of Gotham police at that moment. But uh, Joe Chill is actually killed by the Reaper. And so Batman doesn't have to do it. But the other thing, the other thing that was inspired from this run is that Bruce develops a relationship with a young lady named Rachel Caspian, who, of course, as we just talked about, ends up being the daughter of the Reaper. But Bruce develops a relationship with her. There is they get engaged, just like uh, Bruce and Andrea did in the movie. The big difference here is instead of her being the villain she ends up deciding at the end of the storyline that she's going to continue with the path that she was on before meeting Bruce. And she's going to go be a nun. And the reason she gives is because once it's revealed, her father was the Reaper. She wants to become a nun in order to atone for her father's sins. I think, uh, I guess logically that kind of sort of makes it philosophically makes sense. So the movie does do a better job with the, the relationship. I think so. It, it does yeah, a better whole... job with the love story. It does a better job of Bruce having to wrestle with whether or not he can be happy. Uh, the I think the movie does a much better job with that than the comic does. But 
it's still a great read. Even if you have read or watched Mask of Phantasm, go and read Batman Year Two. Like I said, it's only four issues. It's a quick read, but it's a great story arc. And so I do recommend it. Yeah, I don't think it gets the love that Year One gets. I know Year One is, is big in a lot of circles of comic book uh, fans. And Frank Miller. Th- this movie, yeah, well, obviously that, that helps with the uh, the popularity of it. But even even this movie has a couple of callbacks to Year One. Uh, you look at the scene where he's fighting the thugs uh, at the truck heist, and he's got the ski mask on and the leather jacket. And then the construction scene, which is a, a pretty big scene in the Year One comic. Not so much here, uh, but a couple of callbacks to year one. But a, a cool thing that I found watching this, you're talking about the Reaper, or I guess reading year two. The Reaper ends up killing Joe Chill in the comic, right? Even though Batman, Bruce Wayne had planned to do it. If you watch Batman Begins, Bruce Wayne goes and gets a gun and plans on killing Joe Chill outside, but somebody beats him to it. Talia Al Ghul in The Dark Knight Rises is the love interest and turns out to be the bad guy. So I think not only is this comic and movie combo popular and great in its own right, but it's also caused uh, a lot of inspiration on down the line. And I think that makes it even more iconic. Yeah, no, we uh, we didn't get into that earlier. I'll agree with that, that this, well, I, I don't know how much though it was this movie as it was the Batman animated series because mm-hmm. Even this is going back into kind of background stuff. You know, this was not the original idea for this movie. The original right. idea the for this movie was, yeah, the trial of Batman, where they you question instead of questioning, can Bat, you know, what's Batman and Bruce's the the turmoil he lives in. Instead, it was do these villains only exist because of Batman? Um, they did later turn that into an episode, but I think that because you made that connection with the, uh, the dark Knight trilogy, well, they do a trial in mm-hmm. dark Knight rises. 100%. And so, yeah, I think a lot of the Batman animated series, what Burton rejuvenated, they continued in the Batman animated series. And even though we got Schumacher's Batman's along the way, thankfully, these Batman animated series into Superman, the animated series into justice league. We're still going on in the back behind those that were still holding the true depth of story for these characters that definitely inspired Christopher Nolan, definitely inspired Zack Snyder and going on into the DCEU that we have now. Yeah. And I, I don't think that the trial would have been a bad movie plot to go with because it asks another very important question which came first the chicken or the egg essentially like are these villains existing because of batman or does batman exist because of the villains it was a movie that would have had batman sitting for a lot of it if you've ever watched the episode Mm -hmm. he's tied up for most of that um but just kind of bird walking here a little bit for my readers out there if you want some deep dive into batman Batman in Sociology and Batman in Psychology by Travis Langley discusses those questions of can he ever be happy being Batman? Is he important to Gotham as he thinks he is? You know, are villains around because of that? So a couple of good things to read that ask those questions. But yeah, I mean, it even gets into, and I, I, I kind of mentioned this earlier, 
it gets into the different paths that a person can choose to take of being a vigilante. So really, there are three different paths we see here because we've got Batman and him having his code, his vow. He, he's got a clear path that he takes. Now, he does veer off of it in the comic in this story, but pretty much in the movie, he holds his part of his view on being a vigilante. Then we've got Andrea, who is a little off of Bruce's path. She's still kind of following the same way. She wants to put an end to all of the the criminals and people who make life miserable for people in Gotham. But she, of course, has the willingness to kill. And then we've got the Joker. Because if we really think about it, the Joker, he doesn't care if you're a good guy or a bad guy. If... He wants you to die. You're going to die. And so the Joker even kind of follows into this extreme edge of being a vigilante. He has his own law, just like Batman has his own law. And so I I really do think it really does show, like you said, that psychology of what a person, and this movie does tell it well, what a person goes through mentally when they experience tragedy excellent dude i mean that's i'm sitting here just taking notes that's an excellent excellent point to bring up you've got on one hand bruce slash batman who's following you're right his own code and then you've got the joker which i would argue would be batman if he just had no holds bar if like he just had you know this view that the joker does that my view of the world is the only view that matters and so whatever i deem necessary gets done machiavellian if you will is is what batman could have become yeah that's the thing so you got batman he has morals you got joker he does not they are the ends of the spectrum and andrea is kind of in the gray she's in the middle straddling that fence there yeah you know and but the thing is we can sympathize with batman and andrea Hmm. we cannot sympathize like i talked about earlier should should be none with there's no redeemable quality with this joker and then this movie the animated series had to be so careful because it was a Saturday morning cartoon. They had to watch. So you never actually see, you don't see blood. Right. You don't see if people get stabbed in the animated series, but you never actually see it happen. People get shot in the animated series, but you never actually see it happen. Always happens off screen. Yeah. Or there's, and even when they were fighting, like this is a fun thing to look back at when they punch, there was something they created that was like a flash in the animation. Uh, yeah. So yeah. you don't actually see the fist connect, but the Point. flash makes you think you saw the fist connect. So there were a lot of boundaries that they had. To, I mean, they were teeter tottering with the animated series. This movie. Nope. We're, we're just, we're going to show you the blood. We're going to show you the murdering. Um, we're even going to imply some sexual relations. Yeah, a little romance happening there, Bruce and Andrea. Yeah, with, with, with Alfred always having to walk in. Look, the guy's got impeccable timing, okay? <laughs> Absolutely, 100%. And I don't know, again, who is putting the final stamp of approval on the animation boards, but Alfred's expressions throughout the movie, from shock to surprise <laughs> to humor, are always spot on. Yeah. Well, talking about how much this is a flashback, I even, it wasn't until... I think I was watching it to prepare for this show to notice because Bruce, you don't really notice a change in his look from the flashback Mm -hmm. to the present. 
and Andrea don't really notice, but Alfred, he doesn't have gray hair. Yeah, and the flashback. He's got the jet black hair. And then, of course, his hair is a little bit grayer when we come to the present. I like that subtle little touch there, too. But again, a lot of a lot of good attention to detail. Yeah. But going back to pushing the boundaries. So we talked about implying the sexual relations between Batman or Bruce and uh, Andrea. What about <laughs> Joker and that robot? <laughs> Because oh, no. <laughs> you you know what I'm talking about. Joker is like oh, behind her, and talking to her, and he goes, he goes. So so so, what do you say, honey? You feeling that electricity? Electricity. Yeah. <laughs> oh. And I'm going. Lord. Wait, okay. wait, wait. Did they just uh, did they just tell us that Joker is having relations? Uh, and we're gonna we're gonna keep this clean. Joker is having relations with this robot. Um, two things. One, that would be very shocking. Uh, <laughs> to Dutch. And two, to keep it as family oriented as possible, I'm going to say she didn't let him anywhere near her as evidenced by her chopping that carrot up vigorously no. on the counter there. Or the, the log of bologna later. Yeah, whatever that was. Which, which again, like, you want to, <laughs> you want to talk about a fun, uh, the way it was animated when Joker is fighting with Andrea at the end and she has him pressed up against that table. He reaches back and they frame it. <laughs> so it looks like he's reaching for the knife, but then when it cuts, he slaps her with the baloney. And I, I was like, that's genius. That's so Joker. Like that was, that was great. Oh God. Oh, oh okay. That got me. That caught me off guard. Thank <laughs> Yeah, what's going on? Oh, what was her name, dude? I can't remember her name. I now. can't I just remember. Rewatched either. it. I can't remember her name either. Oh man. Uh, okay, I mean, regrouping <laughs> after that curveball you threw me. Um. All right. Well, let let's get in. Let's get into speaking of curves. Let's talk about the reveal. You kind of mentioned this earlier, and I was glad you did mention it. So it means I'm not alone in this. That yeah. reveal was not that shocking. No, not at all. Um, yeah, it it seems pretty obvious, and and even though, like I said, they kind of tease that it's supposed to be her dad. Her dad's not in the movie enough for you to really make that connection. No, he uh, he disappears again pretty early on, and I guess incredibly early on, considering it was a flashback. Yeah. That's the last time we see him. Yeah, and. It, to me, it was like it, it was like an episode of Scooby Doo. It's like okay, there's someone in this movie who we have <laughs> never seen before, and there is a mysterious masked villain. I, I just, I just needed him to pull the mask off of Andre and her be like, I would have gotten away with it if it weren't for you and your meddling butler. <laughs> well, but it's Joker that reveals it, right? I know, but I wanted Batman to be the one to pull, oh, yeah, pull yeah. the mask off. Yeah. Well, and then the other thing is that if you're a comic book fan, it's it's almost a trope. It's the girlfriend turned villain. Yeah, it's a little worn. I mean, Marvel now then yeah. then maybe it wasn't. Well, no, but... I mean Marvel had done it with Elektra. Okay. Um, DC had done it with Carol Ferris. DC yeah, it's a little little worn even then. 
Yeah, I, I can't remember the date of uh, Identity Crisis in DC, but they would do it again. Ah, yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. and Identity Crisis with uh, Gene Loring. Yeah. So again, it it was it was so that's why throughout the episode I kept saying big reveal, and then I would stop myself. Eh, it was a reveal because it's not a reveal that when it happens you go, what? I mean, it's like, it was not this huge gas, and they yeah, and they, they treat it that way. Like Joker calls her says you know, she, when he arrives and she just goes, so you figured me out and takes the hood off. So do you think it was intentionally written that it wasn't such a huge super reveal to, again, to an adult consumer, to a kid? I I can't imagine that that was, again, I even saw, I remember seeing the toy. I remember buying the toy, but still didn't put two and two together as a child. Yeah. As an adult now, I look at it, I'm like, okay, that's now maybe I just wasn't a very smart child. My mom always told me I was, but maybe I wasn't. Uh, but now as an adult, it's like, okay, that's not that shocking. No, I, yeah, possibly from child with, with child's eyes, you could say, you know, I, you know, if I had my daughter watch it, you know, she would probably go, what? She's the villain. But I, yeah, when you're actually following the story, it, it kind of, I, I, for one would have liked maybe a little bit more of maybe a battle between all three of them, the phantasm. Yeah. Batman, Joker, you know, Phantasm's trying to get to Joker. Batman's trying to stop Phantasm. Joker's trying to get to both of them, you know, whatever yeah. it might be. And then having something where Batman does something that causes Phantasm to be seriously injured or something. And then it's revealed like that. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I think that could have been a better reveal, even if it was still obvious that it was her. To have it be more of a reveal in the story, because yeah, you get the you get the battle esque scene with the wind turbine there at the end, um, which is going to lead me to a question in just a minute. But why I, does Batman's I, cape fly in the opposite direction? I mean, that is also a logistical, and uh, I, I, don't, I don't understand that either. I did write that down. I wasn't going to bring that plot point up, but sure, Laramie. <laughs> yeah, physics don't work in the world of Batman mask and the Phantasm. No, I guess just let me get my question here. We'll skip to this. So the, the battle happens-ish, battling quotes. What happens to the Joker, Laramie? Yeah. Well, in you know, like I said, I was reading an interview that Mark Hamill did about this movie. Mark Hamill even went into this movie expecting that this would be the end of the Joker. Oh wow! Okay, I didn't know that. Like he was, he Dang. was, he was expecting that. He was all for. Okay, this is how the Joker meets his end. Because yeah, that's true. We we don't know. We Okay, so that's your question. That's going to lead me into my questions. Sure. With that being said, the final thing we see is Andrea with the Joker and then she does the little fog smoke thing which I'm going to mm-hmm. now ask, how does she do that? How does that work? It's like she can teleport it like comes out of her hand. The smoke does. We no, see that. No, it like comes fighting. out of her feet because when she's running across the the rooftops, you're seeing it trailing. Well, it's coming out of her hand too because when she's fighting the Joker at the end, she holds her hand out and it comes out of her hand as well. So maybe it's coming out. Maybe she's got ports all over. The smoke just pouring out. But the teleportation thing, I don't get. Like she's just yeah, disappearing. It, it does seem like she teleports. Yeah. There's the part where something gets thrown and she yeah, and she vanishes the fan, yeah. and it goes straight through and then she's. There again, uh, there was there's even the part right before the the uh, the big fan scene 
where if you look at the screen, it literally looks like she just appears yeah, at out the of bottom nowhere. of the screen. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, like how does that work? How the same they, reason the cape flies in the wrong direction yeah. of the fan, I guess. Yeah, but at least this would have been in character development, not in a issue with animation. Yeah. Like to explain how she's able to do the smoke thing. And also how is the phantasm so big? Hulkingly big, right? Yeah. And Andrea's this like little timid female compared to Bruce Wayne. Yeah. You see these cutaways, but the phantasm is this imposing looming figure. It is difficult, again, as an adult, to reconcile those kinds of things. And you look back at it and you think, okay, is she on platform boots? Is she in a padded suit? You know, how how but, is she achieving that effect? We just see her pick that mask up mm-hmm, and take yeah. off the the top half of the costume and she's just tiny little uh, 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 yeah staging maybe you're the theater expert is that a thing where you we stage people differently to make them look bigger i mean yeah you can but i mean with forced perspective and all but that still doesn't work for the way this is laid out okay i don't know i'm just so, I'm trying to help batman mask of the phantasm right now okay all right i i think we're pretty much uh done with with kind of our <laughs> Our little review there. I do want to make one other comic connection. So there is a nod to Batman's Silver Age of comic books. When Bruce is looking at the computer, there are some uh, corporations that pop up. One is called the O'Neill Funding Corporation. The other one is called Adams Tool and Die. And um, that is a nod to writer and artist Dennis O'Neill and Neil Adams from the Silver Age of Batman comics. So I do like that they they tip their hat to some of the greats that came before. Although I will say I got sad also, I got sad during the opening credits when it says Batman created by Bob Kane because this was before Bill Finger right, before got his credit. His credit. Yeah. So but again, we that hadn't been revealed yet that Bill Finger was truly the man behind Batman. But uh, I do like that they, I always love that about comic books. Well, really animated movies. Animated movies always give a nod to those who came before. And in fact, if we're talking about nods, just real quick here, the opening credit scene, which has that hauntingly beautiful score uh, done done by one Shelby Walker. And if you notice in that opening credits, there's some chanting going on that sounds a little bit like Latin. It's actually the names of three of mm-hmm. the key orchestral members being sung backwards. Uh, Shelby Walker wanted to find a way to get the orchestral members some credit. They don't typically get credited by name. They're usually just one big group, yeah. as you'll see at the end of a film comes up, the Chicago Orchestra, whoever. But yeah, got them into the opening credits there being their names chanted backwards. So that was a pretty cool little little yeah. thing for her to throw in there. Yeah, and the score is amazing. I will Always. give that credit. I talked about earlier Joker's laugh. If you actually listen to the score, there's like in the music, there's buildup in the music that mm-hmm. Mark Hamill's laugh matches with perfectly. Great. Absolutely. Great. All around well done. All right. So let's get into our final decisions. We know that here on Moving Panels, we call it bag it, stack it, or trade it. I, I kind of have a feeling where this is going because you started off right off the bat talking about it's the greatest. Batman movie, superhero movie ever. So go ahead and give it to us, Blake. Do you bag it or trade it? The only thing more predictable than my decision may be Andrea Beaumont being the Phantasm because I'm definitely going to bag this one. 
I own quite a quite a lot of movies, and most of them I take out of the sleeve and just put in a an old CD disc holder. Batman Mask of the Phantasm I have still in the case on my shelf. Um, I'm just lucky that it's also on HBO Max, so I can go back to it anytime I want to without actually having to open that case up and keep it in pristine condition. Um, so yeah, we're bagging it, we're keeping it. Again, for, for my money, definitely the greatest DC animated film of all time. Maybe the best Batman movie of all time. Bag it, keep it, cherish it. There you have it. I do know that uh, I forgot if it was the AFI or who it was. Somebody ranked this. I think it was the 24th best animated movie of all time. Uh, a lot of people do actually put it up there, like you said, with one of the best Batman mm-hmm. movies, with probably The Dark Knight being a close yeah, second yeah, yeah. or right just beating it out for some yeah. people. I, I'm going to go unpopular opinion. I'm going to say stack it. Ooh. Oh, Laramie. Bring yeah. the heat here today. Okay. Stacking so, it. So he, yeah. So here's the, here, here's my reasoning. It's a, it's good. I'm not saying it's not, it's I good. I like it so far, but it is just a long episode of Batman, the animated series. There's nothing that makes this special. There is nothing that makes this unique to the series. When I see a movie that is based off a television show, I want to see something different. I want to see something grander if they're going to make it a theatrical lease. And I I know we talked about the problems with that, Mm -hmm. but I want to see something. A CGI Gotham City for the opening credits is not enough. Like I want to see a story I want to be told a story that is going to impact these characters. And to me, this story doesn't do that. And so, and it's, it's one that I don't think of, you know, if you were obviously right now, because Blake asked me to do mask of the phantasm, we're doing mask of the phantasm. So recently I have been, you know, around mask of the phantasm, but if a month before you mentioned mask of the phantasm to me, if you were to ask me to rank Batman movies, I probably wouldn't have even put this on the list because I don't even think about it. Okay. So it's not that it's bad. It's a good movie. It's just not anything special. And when when you end up, like you were talking about having it on DVD, when you end up releasing it on DVD and even releasing it on Blu-ray that they have out now, and you just release it in a package with the Sub-Zero Mr. Freeze movie. Okay, yeah, that's tough. Yeah, You're putting it on the same level. Yeah. And you're putting it right there with a movie that was, you know, an extension of the animated series. And that's honestly all I think of when I think of this. Great movie. It's told great, but so was the animated series. Nothing we have said about Mask of the Phantasm couldn't also be said about the actual series. Very fair point. That is why I say stack it. Okay. Well, uh, again, your opinion is yours, Laramie, and as wrong as it is, I will let you have it. (laughs) (laughs) Totally agree. And that's the great thing is we, we all love comics. We love these characters. We love these movies. And, but we all have our own thoughts about each of them individually. Yeah. I, uh, again, we'll, we'll let you have it. I uh, appreciate your thoughts and all of your opinions on all things superhero. Uh, and I'll, I'll just kind of close with this, Laramie. I wish, and DC, WB, if you're listening, 
you left it enough of a cliffhanger with Andrea Beaumont being on the boat by herself. Make another one. Make it better. Let Laramie see it and change his mind. Yeah, we we actually didn't mention this. Uh, she did appear back. Uh, she was in the final. Ep- it was the final episode, right? Correct. Yeah, the final last episode one, yeah, yeah. of the Justice League animated series, uh, or Justice League Unlimited, wherever you want to act. It's unlimited. It. Yeah, she appeared in the final episode. Uh, as the phantasm, you didn't see Andrea. You saw the phantasm uh, walking behind Terry McGinnis and his parents. And the the plan was was that she was going to murder the parents, and it would be like a whole new setup of creating the new Batman. However, Bruce and everything he did in this movie made her second guess it in that movie, and she does not go through with it. A cool little cool little moment for her. And if you want a little more Phantasm-centric story, Paul Denny did write a sequel comic to this movie called Shadow of the Phantasm. It won an Eisner, uh, which is, if you know anything about comics, the upper echelon of comic awards. So Paul Denny's Shadow of the Phantasm continues Andrea's story. She returns to Gotham. Go check that out. Yeah, and I think only about a decade ago, maybe less, she became canonical in the... Yeah. DC universe. Yep. So she is now just like Paul Denny creating Harley Quinn. And she's now a part of the DC universe. It did take a lot longer, but Andrea Beaumont and the phantasm is now a part of the DC universe. But I also appreciate uh, you, Blake and what you bring to this show. Uh, it's always great. And thank you for joining me on this walk through mask of the phantasm. And thanks everybody for listening. Rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the show alive. Uh, I mean, we'll never stop. As long as I'm wanting to make episodes, there will be episodes. I was like, wait a minute. We're not killing the show, are we? No, 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 no. As as long as I want to make episodes, there will be episodes. But but keep it growing is really what I'm looking for. There you go. Uh, And uh, positive five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts and uh, reviews, uh, written reviews, help actually their algorithm move that along. But give us uh, a follow on social media. I won't go through all of that. I've done it several times before. But for today, for Moving Panels, I'm Laramie Wells. I'll see you on the other side of the page. Mm